listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 279. Hello and welcome to podcast number 279. Uh, I'll just have a breather for a second. Sorry for the delay in, in getting these out this last couple of weeks. Uh, Rose and I have been suffering, suffering from a stinking cold, this bug that's been going around. And sadly, um, we're still suffering now, which is a bit frustrating because... It's uh, mid-October uh, 2009, and of course it's OMM time, the original mountain marathon, which in actual fact is in a few days' time. Uh, now, oh, let's just keep going for a second. The, uh, the OMM was probably made famous, more famous than ever before, last year, of course, in 2008. Uh, during uh, when it hit the headlines during sort of the freak weather in the Lake Districts where it was taking part and you might remember the coverage that it got by the uh, general established professional media uh, of desk-bound Johnnies incorrectly assuming that there was disaster on the hills and 1,700 people were lost and that was all because of one PR hungry individual. No, you don't remember the reports? Well, let me remind you of some of the rubbish which passes for professional reporting these days. A dramatic operation to rescue hundreds of stranded runners on a Lake District mountain. Torrential rain, high winds and flooding cause a marathon race to Obviously end in chaos. We've been talking to someone who's been sheltering, offering shelter to several hundred people who were taking part and he was criticising the organisers. So you think they were a bit to mad to go out in that sort More of than weather. a dozen people were taken to hospital suffering from hypothermia and minor injuries. In stretches just ex ex describe some of the conditions that, that these people were, 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 were in when you took to the hospital. The police and the Mountain Rescue Service search for competitors still missing this But morning. these are the lucky ones. Several hundred of their fellow competitors are still in the hills, apparently stranded. You're relieved tonight that you're, you're not actually having to take shelter or indeed are, are stuck out on the fells somewhere Is this tonight. a major operation for you or, or is this something which is easily containable as far as the... Police and rescue teams in the Lake District are trying to account for more than 1,500 fell runners who took part in a race yesterday in a pool. The emergency weather. services declared a major These incident. Farmers barn in the Lake District has become a makeshift Did you advise centre. them not to Some go. people are still missing. The home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. It's all about getting out and having much more fun. Ah, remember it now then. Yes, the infamous 2008 OMM up in the Lake District. Well, uh, this time it's in the Elam Valley in the heart of Wales, which uh, I'm sure will be full of people hoping for the same challenging conditions as it was last year. Um, but uh, perhaps without the underwater car park and campsite, which uh, put a bit of a... Uh, Bit of a, a dampener on the whole whole weekend. Uh, of course, Rose and I, uh, we wanna f if we're well enough, we'll be reporting our progress and hopefully uh, catching a few interviews with the folks there like we did before. Uh, and um, I think we'll also be reviewing the gear and the food and, and so and so, um, just trying to give everybody an idea of what it's like and perhaps pass on some ideas. 
But uh, as I say, you know, we've both been suffering from this flu for the last week, 10 days, and it's really wiped us out. So uh, I'm just hoping we can clear our heads before before the weekend. Anyway, it's been uh, really nice to hear that everyone has been enjoying the, the podcast that we've been doing. We've had some lovely emails, and I'm going to read one or two to you now uh, from, from uh, regular listeners. Here's one from September from uh, Andy, Andy Willie. Uh, Dear Rose and Bob, just wanted to thank you for your excellent service and Rose's call to check on delivery. Sorry I was a bit flustered. I've just done a presentation. Um, Having also recently started listening to your podcast on the Outdoor Station, I just wanted to send my thanks and congratulations on a wonderful contribution to the Outdoors community through both the podcasts and your excellent store. All the best, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate that. I've got one here from Colin Ibbotson, who a name people will probably uh, recognise if they're regular listeners. That's lightweight Colin, the the guru. Uh, he and I keep ping-ponging emails back and forth, but he sent me a nice one here. Uh, hi, all. I know I'm probably the last to do so, but I finally got round to listening to the 2009 TGO Challenge series while on the Southern Upland Way. I must say they were excellent and, and even an improvement over the very high standards previously set. I'm not singling her out, but Shirley's sense of humour added another dimension. <laughs> Tell me about it. And had me in hysterics at time, much to the amusement of the local sheep. I don't know how much feedback you get about the podcasts, but I have a feeling we take them all for granted. I know they can be a pain to do, and God knows only how much time it takes you to put it all together so professionally, but we do appreciate your hard work. Well done, and please keep it up. Well, thanks, Colin. It's really nice of you to, uh, to drop that email. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking the time to do that. There's another one here from uh, Darren Holiday. Uh, hi Bob and Rose, just want to say how much I enjoyed listening to your podcasts. I usually listen to them on my iPod when I'm walking or getting the bus into town. It gives me something to imagine of being out there instead of listening to the drone of traffic. I wasn't sure about the new jingly bits, uh, feel to recent co- uh, podcasts, but I think it's because I'm used to the old style. But it's growing on me. Uh, I've just been listening to the Cape Wrath Trail series you did, and I love the practical information and descriptions of the scenery. Keep up the fantastic work. Thank you, Darren. That's really nice of you to say that, and I'm glad you enjoyed the Cape Wrath. That was a, a really enjoyable trip for us. And finally one from Australia, uh, Kerry Ann Larkin. Hi Bob, I've listened to your podcast Travelling to Work each morning and they left me out of the humdrum traffic. Thanks. I've listened to almost all the podcasts over the last six months and look forward to hearing more from you, Rose, Andy, Kate and Shirley. Uh, I've been listening with great interest to your gear reviews which often inspire me to search the internet for further information. This got me thinking, I wonder if you could do a podcast on your dream gear list for winter, summer and all seasons or perhaps uh, an annual roundup of some of the best gear. I need to buy all types of gear but find the choice so confusing. The dream list would perhaps offer a budget mid-range and top-end choice for each piece of kit. I know how much of it is about fit for items but much of my purchases through are through the internet and there's not much choice in the way of ultralight gear here in Australia. Uh, I hope to hear your list soon. Keep up the fantastic job you're do- doing. It is truly inspiring. I'm even considering flying over to do the 2011 TGO Challenge for my 50th birthday after trekking Nepal for my 40th. Best wishes, Kerry Larkin. And I understand Kerry's actually been ill, so I hope, uh, hope you're recovering well, uh, Kerry. And, um, well, I hope you enjoy listening to this and uh, the rest of the podcast we're doing. Have any feedback, questions, or suggestions? Why not drop us a line either on Facebook or directly to our email address info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. The home of UK based audio and video podcasts for outdoors people everywhere. I better get back to carrying on with my training. As you can tell, probably from the background noises, I'm just 
above the town of Malvern up on our local hills and I'm going straight up the side and straight down the other side and straight back up again because I find that's the best training for something like the OMM and it's nice to stop and have a breather, breather for a bit and have a quick chat. But anyway, let's get on with this, this particular podcast. Um, a bit later on in the show, I talked to a man about titanium wood-burning stoves, which I think will get all the stoves very excited. Um, but first, as it's autumn time and the nights are starting to draw in, it's time for Andy to pull on his warm furry slippers and draw up his comfy chair closer to the roaring fire and get stuck into some books to help those seeking something different for Christmas. And so, fresh from the library, at the other end of the Outdoor Station studio, here's Andy Howell, the bookworm himself. Thanks, Bob. It's a long time since we've uh, produced some book reviews for the Outdoor Station, and some people have been writing in and requesting some more. So I've been rummaging through the bookcases uh, to come up with some titles that uh, you can take on that late summer holiday, but that will keep you company during those longer, colder winter nights um four absolute crackers here uh two all-time classics one very quirky but wonderful title that you may have missed when it came out four or five years ago uh and an absolute fabulous new title so first off um the classics patrick lee firmer uh rightfully under reputation as being uh, one of the greatest travel writers of the second part of the 20th century and for my money he's one of the best stylists writing in English today. Um, he developed his reputation on the back of some fantastic travel books, uh, many written about Greece and the Greek islands where he's lived since the Second World War uh, and uh, a number of books also about some uh, very exotic further flung destinations. Uh, there's a fantastic book on the Caribbean for example. Um, but. Patrick Lee Firma saved his greatest tales uh, for his last books, and they are the story of his first great adventure. Um, as a very young man, just prior to the Second World War, Patrick Lee Firma found himself thrown out of his public school, and with no other idea what to do with his life, he decided to walk from London to Constantinople. Now, Lee Firma was walking at a fascinating time. He started his trip in Holland and walked through Germany and on to the flatlands of the Great Hungarian Plain. And he was doing so at a time when the Nazis were arming and preparing for war. And that sense of drama really runs all the way through this book. And we see this through the eyes of a, uh, of a very young man, didn't know much about the politics of the world, but who was gradually dawning on him actually the scale and the magnitude of what was happening in um, Europe. What makes these books very fascinating is that Lee Firma himself, while that he'd been thrown out of school uh, uh, as a bit of a failure, had an absolute gift for languages and a fascination about European cultures. And as we move into Germany and the flatlands, where languages have intermingled and cultures have uh, interchanged over generations, uh, he naturally captures this richness and wealth of European culture. Um, the stories aren't bad either. We find him uh, sleeping out rough in all kinds of weather. We find him um, being given shelter by peasant families in tiny villages uh, and inns that haven't changed much over several hundred years. And we find him uh, welcomed into the homes of... Uh, 
homes and castles of nobility, of some of whom were even um, part of the rise of the of Nazi movements in Germany. It's a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, the first book, Time of Gifts, takes us from the Hook of Holland to the Middle Danube, and the second book, Between the Woods and the Water, starts off at the Middle Danube and crosses the Great Hungarian Plain to the Iron Gates. The final book of this journey has never been produced, and that was because uh, when the Nazis invaded uh, Romania, where uh, Lee Fermer was at the time, he had to flee the country very quickly, and he had to leave behind his notebooks. And he always felt that without the detail in those notebooks, he'd never be able to properly recreate um, that sense of journey. Uh, but when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, the Daily Telegraph, I think, flew Fermer out there to compare um, the Romania of today with the Rom Romania that he'd left um, pre-war. He went back to the house that he'd been staying in, was amazed to find that the same family still lived there, and over several generations they kept his notebooks, and he was able to... Um, uh, take them back with him to his home in the Peloponnese. Now, um, those of us that are fans of Lee Fermer are desperately hoping that he'll finish this third volume, although he's getting quite old and, I guess, frail now. So even if we only have these two books to remember this great adventure by, uh, we have two of the best walking books, the best travel books, in my opinion, that ever been produced. And uh, anybody that likes long-distance walking Really, their life is a little bit empty if they've, they've not had a go at these. Um, a Time of Gifts and Between the Woods and the Water are both still in print, uh, available in hardback and paperback from um, good bookshops and uh, from online sellers such as Amazon. Uh, the second book is a, a wonderful book. It's a bit hard to categorise, although it's um, described as a history of walking. It's written by Rebecca Solnit, and it's called Wanderlust, and it came out about eight or nine years ago, and I know that there are many of you that still haven't discovered this book, um, so I thought it would be worth featuring here. Solnit herself is a well-known writer on the left of politics in the US, uh, and perhaps because of this, this book uh, is not just only a, a social uh, account of the development of walking, but there's quite a lot of philosophy in here as well. There's a lot of uh, debate, for example, about the political significance of walking uh, through the ages. I've just considered one little fragment of it that I really wasn't aware of. Um, we all know of uh, women's love of shopping, certainly in the West, and... Um, and the outdoor station has uh, featured uh, women's love of retail uh, on more than a few occasions. Um, but did you know that this developed, women's uh, shopping developed, because shopping was one of the few activities which Victorians felt was safe to allow women to venture out and to do on their own. So the walk to the shops and then the shopping experience came out of a, a, a move towards emancipation, a move towards freedom and the determination from women to be able to do things in their own rights. Um, there's a lot more like that in this book. It is a history of uh, walking uh, and it's pro probably comparable to... Um, Robert McFarlane's book, uh, Mountains of the Mind, uh, which detailed uh, um, humans' development uh, and their relationship and love of mountains. This book is similar, but looking at more humble experience of walking. Uh, just to give you a feeling of some of the scope of this book, uh, the chapters include The Legs of William Wordsworth, 
of walking clubs and land wars. That's something to think about if you're a member of a regular walking society. Um, there's also Paris, or botanising on the asphalt. The mind at three miles an hour. Long distance walking is a great way of sorting out all kinds of things in the head. Um, we've also got walking after midnight, women's sex and public space. And lastly, Las Vegas, or the longest distance between two points. It's very difficult to really get across the scope of this book, but it is about the history of walking in modern society. And as such, um, if you are a walker, it's something that really you should dig out and find. Uh, it's still available by paperback, uh, available from most good bookshops, and certainly available uh, online as well. So that's... Uh, Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit. Our final selection is a new title, uh, one that fascinated me when I saw it um, listed a few months ago. Uh, I had to rush out and buy it. It's um, called Map Addict by Mike Parker, a tale of obsession, fudge and the ordnance survey. And this will certainly appeal to anybody like me who uh, loves collecting maps and likes nothing better than to spend those winter nights uh, poring over the contents. Um, it is a story of uh, self-confessed map fanatics, and apparently there are some really obsessive map collectors out there, um, obviously brought together these days by the internet. Um, and this is a story of one man's love uh, from a young child uh, with maps. There's some lovely personal quirky stuff here. I mean, you know, this is a man who... Uh, love maps so much that when his pocket money wouldn't facilitate his growing collection quickly enough, uh, had to go out and develop his shoplifting techniques in order to complete his um, set of one to 50,000 maps. Um, but there's a lot of uh, historical detail, a wonderful section on the Ordnance Survey, uh, and the story of how they came to produce what are generally reckoned to be the best maps in the world. I was particularly struck by the uh, challenge that Ordnance Survey uh, faces these days in making sure that not too much information is put on those maps. You know those brown and white tourism signs that we see on motorways? Well apparently every tourism chief in every part of the country spends much of their time berating the audience survey to try and get them to put all of that stuff on their maps and of course the maps wouldn't be the efficient things they are today uh, if all of that was there. Um, so uh, there's a lot of history about actually how maps are created. We weren't always the best map-making country in the world, though. For a long time, that title was held by the old enemy, the French. And it was French tauntings of our map-making techniques, and I guess also our fear of invasion, that led us to start um, uh, mapping the country and cre the cr creating the Ordnance Survey Organisation as we know it is today. Uh, lots of <laughs> useful and useless, I guess, information here. Um, there's the uh, list of the top 10, 1 to 50,000 maps in the Ordnance Survey series. There's the uh, top 10 worst, 1 to 50,000 maps. Uh, and then there's all kinds of stuff in between. I mean, which map features the uh, most boring square mile uh, in the country, according to the Ordnance Survey? Well, that's in here. Uh, which map has the most sea and the least land? Well, that's listed as well. And also, um, you know, if you want to know which map has the least contours, the least features on it, you'll find that in this book as well.
Um, but the book's not just about the Ordnance Survey. Uh, there's a, uh, quite a lot of uh, lovely stuff about these um, strange borders, particularly the ones that you find in, in Europe, you know, where a, a border can go up a high street and actually even divide a, uh, an inn. Um, and apparently um, the journey, the connecting point between these kind of borders is something of a, a, a fascination for map completionists. Uh, there's a section, um, more understandably, I guess, on uh, the power of maps and politics, another about the importance of uh, maps to religion, and another one called Carta Erotica that looks at maps and sex. Uh, slightly indelicate, this, but uh, as you'd expect, the um, chalk man of CERN is in here. Uh, it's quite an issue, this, really. How do you portray... Um, the CERN man's private parts and how big should they be and did you know that in real life the CERN man's private parts are getting bigger as the years go by hmm. it's not just about uh, chalk men though uh, there's a lot of stuff here about medieval place names and certainly medieval society was uh, nowhere near as worried about us uh, about naming streets after uh, the occupations that went on in them uh, slightly indelicate by today's standards um, but if you live in Grove Lane you, know, you might want to rush out and read this book just to see where that name came from uh, also we've got a section on maps and gender is it really true that men are hardwired to be better map readers than women or is it something to do with different socialisation techniques and the final section looks at the digital revolution and maps uh, it's entitled Pratnav which gives you an idea as to how the um, author sees the SatNav system. Um, but it's also much more than that. It looks at the great advances in online access, digital mapping, and rehearses some ideas as to where the future of mapping might lie. Um, if you are uh, a fan of maps like I am, you will love this book. It certainly is a tale of obsession. Uh, it certainly is a tale of fudge. And there's a lot about the Ordnance Survey in it as well. Um, only available in hardback at the moment, price £12.99, uh, but you will find it uh, cheaper than that, I guess, on the web uh, or from some uh, of the book bigger, or for some of the bigger booksellers. So we've looked at four books today. Um, any one of them or all of them will be great companions for the winter. First off, we had two uh, classics from Patrick Lee Firma, a time of gifts and between the woods and the water they're both available still in paperback uh, we had second up wanderlust by rebecca solnit a history of walking and that's also available uh in paperback from all good bookshops and finally map addict from mike parker back to you bob it's all about the great outdoors Demand. And always free. I think it's a splendid idea. This, this is, is the Outdoor Station. I would just like to say, wow. Oh, gosh, this flu thing's taking a while to shake off. Uh, right, let's move on. At the Wilderness Gathering this year, uh, that's the big bushcraft gathering down in Wiltshire, I was fortunate to meet 
Donald Cavellis of 4dog.com, who's based in St. Francis, Minnesota in the US. Now, 4dog stoves are probably better known for their large portable wood stove systems used in the, in the bigger teepee and uh, pack tents popular with people who like to camp in the snow, uh, but in comfort in, in the US and probably mainland Europe, really. However, he's also behind a, a new range of portable wood stoves, also made from titanium. Now, as uh, probably people in the UK are probably not aware of 4Dog uh, stoves, I asked Donald to, to briefly explain the history of his, uh, his products. Yeah, the larger stoves, I started to uh, uh, go into historical recreating where we were staying in uh, white canvas tents. And I'd made uh, larger stoves for heating houses and shops, but there wasn't really anything out there that I felt comfortable to have myself or my loved ones in the tent. And so uh, I made my own stove, and then someone saw it. Yeah, see, that looks pretty good. Could you make one for me? And from there it went on. I worked uh, approximately five years, you know, kind of doing both. And finally I had one, one foot on the dock, one on the boat. And I figured, uh, well, i got to do one or the other. And so the uh, 18 years now that I've been doing this full time, but I started 22 years ago. So tell me, we were just talking about um, the sort of the, the, the common practices of people that go out into the world and take these stoves and take the larger tents. Um, you know, what's, what's that lifestyle like in America? Uh, it's, it's really, really popular in um, the western states. Uh, they have a real tradition of going to what they call elk camp for elk hunting. And they traditionally go out, they set up the large wall tents, which normally are about 14 by 16 foot. And then they uh, use a portable wood stove system, which has been actually would go back to the 1800s to what they would have called a sheep herder stove. And the concept of that is that you wanted everything to be able to fit in your firebox, your, uh, your legs, your side shelf, your stovepipe, just for ease of transportation and compactness because a lot back then and even today you find uh, about a third of the people pack in with uh, horses and mules and to be able to do that you have to be able to pack as much as you can in this small an area. And it's still popular that using horses and, and mules then rather than using Land Rovers and four-wheel drive vehicles? Uh, I'd say by far more people use the Land Rovers than the four-wheel drive but there's still the real delegated group that to get way back in the backcountry and to get where you can get the uh, better opportunities for more of a trophy elk and also for the challenge and the ability to feel autonomous, there's still, I'd say, a large a large amount of people that do that, especially in Washington, Oregon, Montana, Colorado, and Idaho. And what, what is, what's the law regarding, uh, you know, building a property or building a hut and all that sort of thing? It's all fairly controlled over there, is it? Right. It's real controlled on that land because that's normally all held by, in state, by the uh, federal government or state government. And so there's very little small acreage available. Now, in the uh, Midwest, in northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and in uh, Pennsylvania, they have what they call the deer camp. And there the people have, say, 20 acres, 40 acres, and then they'll put up a small cabin. And even there, I find they'll use my stoves because of uh, being there only there normally once a year. Mm. The problem of vandalism, it allows them to set the stove up quickly and take everything out and you just leave the door unlocked and there's nothing there to be vandalized. Yeah, it's a shame that happens all over the world, isn't it? Yes, it is. So the, these camp stoves are made from, uh, is it mild steel, is it? Yeah, it'd be out of a hot rolled steel because it takes the heat a little bit better. And then it's, uh, they're entirely welded. I tend to use, uh, I, I believe in having an airtight stove with a baffle because by doing that it does three things for you. It makes it safer because you know, don't have any direct flame going up the chimney. 
acts like it's built-in spark arrester, makes it more efficient, because the most efficiency you can get from a stove without a baffle and an airtight door is 30%, or with the baffle and the airtight door, you can go up to 60%. Then also the third thing what it does, it makes it much better for cooking, because it deflects the flame and gives you a nice hot spot on top of the firebox for cooking. I noticed with your booklet, you've got some very interesting information there about the efficiency of, uh, of organic fuel. Uh, and how efficient it is when it's drier and, and the difference between a, a pound of, uh, of pine and a pound of hardwood. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you've obviously been working with, with, with wood and the efficiency of using wood for a long time. Yeah, I've been, I've been heating my home from the time I was a little boy with wood and even to this day we heat with wood. And to me it's a real challenge for me. I keep trying to extract the maximum of that 7,000 BTUs from one pound of dry wood material. And that's my, you know, that's like me, like a dog chewing on a knuckle bone. And I keep <laughs> working towards that. Yeah. The, the material that you've, you're obviously moving over to from, from steel is, is titanium. That, that itself must be a big jump. Yeah, that, I started to do that 10 years ago. And the reason I did that, I needed a stove. I had customers that would go trappers and also uh, winter campers and explorers that would go into the far north of Canada and Alaska in temperatures down to 40, 45 below zero. And they were hand hauling or they were putting it on a sled being hauled by dogs. So their weight was a real issue. Mm. And in that temperature, you have to run the stove so hot that it's uh, normal mild steel would hardly last you a season. Mm. And so, uh, and weight was a major issue. And that's where I, I'd seen a sample that was from Russia, and that's where I got the idea to try it. And uh, I've read really, really, really good success. It takes, really takes the abuse. And you take a trapper that's out on the trail, he, he can't afford to have anything fail, yeah, yeah. especially at those temperatures, mm. and I've had very good luck. Let's talk about titanium just for a moment because it's, it's sort of, uh, although people recognise the name and it's been used in a lot in the UK for a whole variety of products, um, I think people probably are very fairly ignorant as regards what it's like to work with as a, as a metal. Uh, I understand it, it cuts well, it, it welds well. Yeah, it's, uh, the biggest thing I'd say that, you know, there was a learning curve to do it because I was used to working with stainless and uh, mild steel and aluminum. The biggest thing I found the difference is, is that it, uh, it cuts well, but the biggest difference would be uh, when welding, you have to make sure that it doesn't get corrupt, the weld doesn't get corrupted with oxygen, and then that it it shears well and punches well, but it does does dull rapidly. And then the other thing you have to the bending of it's a little bit more difficult because it'll tend to fracture much easier than the others, and you must go way past whatever angle you want or radius you want to roll it than you would other other materials. But once uh, I would say. Once I'd been working with it for you know about a year, I'd understood its nature. Mm. It, it's not been a problem, and I find it real enjoyable uh, to work with. Well, t taking that in, in, in hand, I notice you've, you're now introducing uh, in the UK is, uh, is a titanium little wood-burning stove. Tell us a bit about that. Okay. Well, I call it, I'd been working on this for about 10 years, and I, I suppose it all goes back to when I was a little boy, and I made, you know, the old hobo, hobo stove with my dad mm -hmm. out of tin cans. And then also when I was soldiering, I used to cook a lot with just like little twig fires. And so it's always been a strong interest of mine. And so I've been working on this. I've ha had a other version that has been available since 2003, but I didn't have my manufacturing technique down. It was heavier than I liked, and it wasn't quite right. And then when I came up with this design, I was finally able to come up with a stove that would either burn meth, hex, or any solid fuel. And uh, I've had really, really good luck with it. And it's also, I've d developed the manufacturing technique to whereas it can be affordable to the average uh, backpacker or outdoor enthusiast. So it's, it's, it's made on the, the, the science of it's made on uh, basically on wood gas. It's a wood gas system. Right. It's a wood gas system. 
What makes it a little different than most wood gas systems is that what I've done is that I've put uh, my burning grate, it almost looks like a small fan. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, what I've done, I've created a vortex, which would be the same thing as you see in a really good bonfire. If you ever notice a good bonfire, you'll see that almost like miniature tornado in the center. Mm -hmm. But what's that doing? That turbulence is mixing your hot gases and your air, oxygen, and then you're getting a better, more complete burn. And then you have your secondary combustion by the gasification, mm -hmm. which uh, now you're getting a really good efficiency, you're creating no smoke, and you're extracting the maximum amount of uh, heat from your fuel. Mm. Uh, what I did uh, enjoy yesterday is you actually cooked up a cake as well. I thought that was very interesting to see the system of, of using uh, this, this cooker, or any cooker you were saying, but this cooker predominantly, uh, to, to, to bake. And I wonder if you just like cover that for people that are interested in baking when they're out on the, on the trail. Yeah, I've uh, come up with, well, you're, bas you're basically taking um, two pans, one larger than the other. Say one, one is one liter, one is two liter and you put a, a diffuser. In other words, the diffuser I do use is made out of titanium, and what it does, it doesn't allow a direct heat under the pot, which would end up burning your, uh, your mix. But by having that diffuser, then the heat goes up and around, and then you put like three pebbles on top of your first pot, which would be the one liter pot, and then you just place that right over the top. And then you, you're able to uh, bake either with wood that's been produced into charcoal. You can bake with your hex, tabs by adding you know half of uh, esmet every five minutes or with charcoal you can uh, bake with that up to one hour with three to four briquettes of charcoal so so basically in a nutshell the principle is to have your your diffuser plate which is titanium which obviously is vital for for the actual the way that titanium works it's got a couple of uh, it's got three supports on it just to raise the one liter pan uh, and then you have three stones on top which then creates a gap around the pan, and then you put your two-liter pan inverted over the top of it, so it traps the air and keeps the whole thing warm. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, and I find that the learning curve is on it is quite rapid. But what I suggest to people is like get like three or four little cake mixes, mm -hmm. the, the type that where you add just water, and then do that one after another. Mm -hmm. And then by the fourth one, you'll definitely have had your uh, developed your skills and you'll be, uh, uh, and the next time you'll be able to do it right. Yeah, but yeah. each time, you, you know, it'll be half the fun is sampling uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the results. Your efforts, yeah, right. absolutely. The, uh, the, with, the, with the shape of this, sort of uh, the, the actual stove itself, um, first of all, what's the name of the stove, let's get that right? I call it uh, the Bush Cooker Light 1 and the Bush Cooker Light 2. Okay, so they're, the one, one will fit into a 600 mil pot, is that right? Uh, it'll actually go down to like a Snow Peak 600 mug, it'll fit in that, mm -hmm. but, I, but I would say any 750 mug, or 700 mm -hmm. mugger to fit into. Okay, so that's that's the the storage of it. The 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 grill, as you say, is like a fan. When you look down into it, you can see the fan. Now, how do you use meths with that? Because obviously, meths won't settle in the right. bottom there. What you do with the meth, you put it just basically. I, I provide a pan with it, but you could use any lid off a, a shoe polish tin. Mm -hmm. You put the meth in the tin, and you do get a disc uh, of titanium to place on the ground to help protect any sort of combustible. And then you light your meth, and then you place the bush cooker over the top of that. And because that thin grate for the wood gets superheated by the uh, alcohol, that vaporizes the alcohol, creates a turbulence, and then the afterburner effect of the gasification process gives you a complete burn. And so with one ounce of meth, you can get a half a liter you know, to a roaring boil mm -hmm. in less than five minutes. That's good. And then and then if you're using wood as well, right. do you use the same starter system and then put the wood in on, on top? You can, when you use wood, you can use just wood. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing with it, you can combine any of the three. So now you can 
use the best properties of the meth, the best properties of the wood, to get even a more, uh, a better combination. You're not just isolated to use one or the other. You can combine them and actually, you know, create a hybrid like a mule that's actually superior. Because the nice thing is, say, if you put uh, 10 cc's of meth in your burn cup, pack your uh, the actual stove with twigs, mm -hmm. you light the meth within eight to nine minutes, you'll have a roaring boil on a half a liter, and then you'll still have a, you'll have created charcoal from the wood, and now you'll be able to have a simmer for another six to eight minutes. Okay, and now does this system require a windshield as well, just to make it more efficient? Yeah. Uh, it definitely would works better with a windshield. If you don't use a windshield, then it's, you're automatically going to use more fuel to get the same amount of heat. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest, you know, it's, it's a good, better, much, much better combination to use a windshield. And the only reason we find that we don't use a windshield with, say, our gas burners mm -hmm. is the fact we make up with fuel because of the wind. So now instead of getting eight boils out of our tin of, of fuel, we're only getting four boils. So even with that, you're much better off to use a windshield. Excellent. Now, um, moving on, we're obviously at the sort of main bushcraft show in the, in the UK here. Have you found the general uh, customer feedback and understanding of what you're presenting? Because it's probably, probably something fairly fresh to them. Right. Uh, it's been very good, but it's, it's, it's such a different concept that it really has to be, you know, shown that it works because it's so different from what mo most people understand. Mm. You know, most people understand, burn, you know, smoldery fire, but they understand burning meth or burning esbit but they don't, you know, how you can interchange and use the combination in one stove is a real novel concept. And I think the, uh, I think more people know about because there's other stoves in the market. You produce one, carry the, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's called here, uh, the, honey the, stove, the, yeah. the honey stove. Yeah. And um, so it's a fairly novel concept. Mm. But the one thing that's been real fun to see is, uh, you know, as soon as they take a taste of the muffin, or they see that <laughs> pot boiling, you know, they've seen that dog hunt, and they've seen that, that mule pull, yeah, they yeah. say, hey, you can see the light go off, and yeah, it's like, yeah. hey, I can see where this would be a good piece of kit. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the baking certainly appealed to me, I have to say. Um, just on a slightly separate note, I mean, how do you, you know, looking at the, the type of people in the bushcroft market and the, sort of the interests that are here, mm -hmm. uh, how does that compare to your experiences at home? I mean, how different are, is our viewpoint to to the environment and so on to sort of standard US? Uh, I'm actually quite jealous. I wish there was as um, strong of emphasis on uh, people appreciating their, their environment and the bush that's just in their own area as I see here. And I do see uh, much more of the children and parents involved with the children to get that appreciation. And I, and I think if you don't, you know, if children can't learn to appreciate that lot across their, their street or that park down the road, that natural world that's there, yeah that God's little acre, uh, they're not going to appreciate it anywhere else. And so I think I think in some ways, us Yanks should learn a little bit from uh, you folks over here. Yeah, I think yesterday you mentioned that sort of in schools they, uh, there isn't so much uh, environmental awareness as, as we seem to be putting through here at the moment. Is, would that be correct? I would think so. And, and when they do do it, they tend to do it in far off places. They don't tend to do it as strongly. You know, they're, they're talking about global warming in mm. South America. Africa, the effect there, but they're not looking at it's affecting us too in our own backyards. With over a million listeners worldwide, the Outdoors Station is the leading online audio resource for those into the great outdoors. 
podcasts are based solely around self-powered travel. If you walk, run, cycle, paddle, climb, explore or sail, we want to share your adventure, hear your highs and lows and inspire others to go out and do more. Online, on demand and always available. This is the Outdoor Station. Well, having come up a steep slope, I'm now going down on the other side a steep slope. Uh, so, I hope you've, in, uh, you've enjoyed that uh, that podcast. Thanks to Andy for his excellent book review and to Donald, who can be found at uh, 4dog.com. Um, and obviously to all those other people that have written in as well. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to do that. Um, it sort of all helps to keep us inspired to keep making these. And just as you can imagine, the sanity of carrying extra recording equipment when trying to find a checkpoint in lousy weather on the OMM does one make one question one sanity a bit but uh, anyway we've got some more podcasts coming through um shirley and andy have sent me their um uh, recordings of, of the gear they use i shall be putting together a brief uh, podcast on that and also my daughter beth has um just finished a four-part series on traveling to croatia she did with a girlfriend which may be of interest to people but she wanted to cut her teeth and learn how to do the podcasting element um and she's made quite a good job of it uh, even though i say so myself i suppose i've got a little bit of bias there um so we'll be putting those together and releasing those shortly and as i say if uh, if rose and i can shake the last of this flow thing off we'll be at the uh, omm reporting uh, taking part in some format or other and hopefully uh, capturing the atmosphere for for everybody um we've got an early start on the first day um which means actually an early finish, obviously, which is sort of five hours the first day on the short school. So um, if we do get in on time uh, and get ourselves sorted, we'll have plenty of time to, to chat to people. Uh, but it does mean, of course, you finish early. You actually have to carry more food. So there's a plus and a negative to each of these things. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. And um, fingers crossed we'll be OK for next weekend. And, uh, well, we'll catch, with you, catch up with you soon. Take care now. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear more from our extensive free library, please visit the website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. You can now follow The Outdoor Station on Facebook, where we chat about each program we produce, answer questions, and discuss future productions. Why not join us there? This podcast is produced and hosted by theoutdoorstation.co.uk.